Thank you, David, and choir all bundled up in your jackets up there. You guys can have a seat. It's great, a great morning of praise through singing this morning. Thank you for that. Well, it is good to be with you. I'm sorry it is cold in here. It was funny seeing them all up there in their jackets and our violinist in a hoodie. Uh, But don't worry, I'm about to bring some hellfire and brimstone, so it'll... (laughs) Warm things up in here. Just kidding, sort of. We are in a a pretty, I think, a heavy section of God's Word um, in Revelation. These words, these letters, these commendations, but also warnings and rebukes to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And I'm excited to be here to continue these with you today. I really love these passages. I really do. And I don't love them because they make me feel good, because they decidedly are not some of the uh, more feel-good verses in God's Word. But I love them because I think they are so important, and I also think they are so modern. And when I say they're modern, I I mean, sometimes God's Word, it's kind of hard to figure out how does this apply to us in in 2017. Um, But I think that these passages, they certainly are not that. They fit um, incredibly well with our modern climate, with the modern church, when I read these commendations, when I read these rebukes, I can't help but think, what would our church today look like if the church of the ages had listened to these, if they had taken these commendations as things that are good in the church, and they had taken these rebukes as things to to rid the church of, what would we see in our church today? I think when we look at the modern church, we very much can see these seven churches But as we jump in this morning, I want us to be careful not to see other churches in these seven letters, and specifically today in the letter to the church at Pergamum. We are almost, if I did my math right, 168 years old as a church. And I wonder today, what might we be doing or practicing? What might we be drifting towards that could cause us to come under God's discipline? Or even worse, for God to take us out as a church in San Francisco. So we are a body of individuals. And these letters are written to the church. Jesus is talking to the church. In particular, today, this letter is very corporate. But when he is talking to the church, he is also talking to the church's component parts. And that is each of us. So I I pray this morning that we would hear God speaking to us as the members of his church. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning and for this time of just focusing on the fact that you sit on your throne over all of this. God, that we as Christians, we are welcomed into relationship with you through the blood of Jesus. God, thank you for the beautiful reminder of that in our songs this morning. God, I pray as we read a passage that can be kind of hard, it is not a touchy-feely passage, But God, I pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray we would not bow up um, in some sort of defensive posture against your word this morning, but God, we would be submissive to your word, that our hearts would be soft, each person in this room, that our hearts would be soft to hear from you today, what you have for us, that God, even when you rebuke us, it is for our good, that we might share in your holiness, that we might bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness, as it says in Hebrews 12. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts this morning. I pray that my words this morning would reflect your heart, and I pray that everything that happens today would be pleasing 
and a sweet aroma to you. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you want to open your Bibles, as Ryan said, I think the, the first week, he said, teaching out of Revelation may be hard in some ways, but the easiest thing is it's so easy to tell you where it is. Last book of the Bible, Revelation. We're in Revelation 2. We're going to be starting in verse 12. This week, uh, we are reading Jesus' words through his revelation to John, never called the book of Revelation the book of Revelations. If you really want to make a Bible scholar or a theologian upset, call it Revelations. It is a revelation from Jesus to John that he shared with us. And today we read his letter, his words to the church at Pergamum. Uh, as I was thinking about this, every time I said it, it sounded like an Indian spice to me. Like, hmm, I think I detect a hint of Pergamum. Anyway, let's read this. Chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write... The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Pergamum, in, it was a fascinating, it was a very important city. Uh, Ryan showed us a map of all these churches. I thought I'd show it to you again today so you can kind of see where it is. Pergamum was about 100 miles north of Ephesus. Smyrna, which we, so Ephesus was the first church we talked about. Smyrna, um, last week's church is right in the middle, uh, basically between um, Ephesus and Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was the ancient capital of Asia. It was considered by many people in its time to be the, the most distinguished of the cities in Asia. It was built on this sort of cone-shaped hill. It had a very royal bearing. Unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, it was not a port city. It was inland about 10 miles from the Aegean Sea. It, it was a cultural center. It was a center of learning. Uh, I found it very interesting reading about it. It had a, a, a library of 200 volumes, and I, which is impressive in and of itself, but when you think that that was 200 handwritten volumes, how big that thing must have been. There's a, a history, a legend maybe, that, that the real modern use of parchment was begun in Pergamum because of its library. But it had this big hill, and perched at the top of its hill, sort of at the highest terrace on this cone-shaped hill, were magnificent temples. There was a temple to Zeus. There was a temple to Athene. There was a temple to Dionysus. There was a temple to Asclepius, which is the Greek god of healing, Asclepius was. And because this temple was there to this Greek god of healing, 
People came from all over the world, um, both for healing, but also to study and learn more about medicine. There's a picture of the, the ancient, the ruins of ancient Pergamum, and then the modern Turkish city of Bergama, which is in the background of this picture. So the city was famous for its pagan gods and this pagan influence in these, with these temples. If you can imagine that top of the hill, it would be sort of like the mall at Washington, D.C. People came to visit these places. But even more than that, Pergamum was prominent for its position as the official center in Asia for, emperor, or for the imperial cult. And Ryan talked about this last week. The imperial cult was essentially emperor worship, the worship of um, the, the Roman ruler. Pergamum was the first city in Asia, about 29 BC, to actually um, build a temple that was separate and dedicated specifically to the worship of a living ruler, Emperor Augustus. So this city, being enmeshed in pagan practices and pagan rituals, but also being the center of emperor worship, was a very worldly city. And I think that is why Jesus starts here in this word to, the, to, to Pergamum, to the church at Pergamum, with a word of commendation, a word of encouragement. He essentially acknowledges that he knows what a hard place Pergamum is to live in for a Christian. It was hard for its distinctively pagan environment. It was hard for this almost legal requirement to worship the emperor. And it was hard for sort of an intense general pressure to conform to culture. And in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell. I thought about this many times this week. I think sometimes it's easy to forget as we live in this city, a city where it can be very difficult to maneuver life as a Christ follower. Sometimes it's easy to forget that Jesus too knows where we dwell. I thought about this. This was one of those weeks that, um, that was really hard. It's just one of those where I had a great sense of just being so very different in my beliefs and in the way I live from much of this city. And as I struggled with that, Jesus has been sweet to remind me, and I also will admit that at times he reminded me of this right before he rebuked me, as he does Pergamon, but he's been sweet to remind me, I know where you dwell. I get it. I know where you live. And Jesus says that, I know where you dwell, but then he does not hold back on Pergamum. He calls it in verse 13, the place where Satan's throne is. Not exactly what you would love to hear about your city. And then he says later in that verse, the place where Satan dwells, where Satan lives. This is, this is a hard word. This, this even gives us more of a picture of what Pergamum was like. And there are many ideas as to what uh, Jesus might have meant there. there. Some people think he was referencing this altar of Zeus that was at the top. It was sort of perched over the city. Some people think it was in reference to the snake that was the symbol of the god, the pagan god of healing. But most scholars believe that what Satan here is referring to is really the Roman presence here, the Roman government, this sort of forced civic, civic and, and sometimes um, uh, punishable uh, focus on emperor worship that was happening right in the middle of Pergamum. But whatever it specifically meant, Pergamum was a stronghold, we know this, a stronghold of many things contrary to Christ. 
And we know from Matthew, Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 30, there's really no middle ground with regard to Christ. You can't be really apathetic to Christ or for him. You are either for him or Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, you are against him. And Ryan explained last week, we have one enemy and it's referenced here in this passage, Satan, where he dwells, where his throne is. We have one enemy and he is out to kill and to steal and to destroy. Ryan talked last week, he is a roaring lion. He's out to devour Christians. He's out to destroy our faith. Satan's presence was heavy in Pergamum. And so Jesus commends them, considering the realities of where they live, for remaining faithful. In verse 13, he says, yet, yet, even though I know where you live, even though I know it's a difficult place, yet you held fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even when Antipas, who is, a faith, is called a faithful witness, was killed. We don't know much about Antipas beyond this, but it's common belief that he was a leader in the Pergamum church and that he was killed in a horrific way for failing, refusing um, to call Caesar Lord. And when he is referred to by Jesus here as a faithful witness, Jesus is commending him using language that we see other places that is used to describe Jesus himself. He's given a high commendation. So Jesus encourages them and tells them, it's good, you held fast my name, but then he gets to the bad stuff. He says, a few things I have against you. And he begins to describe false teaching that is happening within the church. This is very different than what Ryan taught about last week in Smyrna. In Smyrna, the pressure or the tribulation that was coming was coming from the outside. In Smyrna, the lines were very clear between the church and the culture. Christianity in Smyrna was under attack from the culture. But here we see something that's very different, and honestly, I think it can be more dangerous. It can be more sinister. What we are seeing here is that the pressure is coming from the inside in the form of false teaching. It says that some here in Pergamum, in the Pergamum church, we are talking to the church about things happening in the church. Some in the Pergamum church held to the teaching of Balaam and some held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The emphasis here is not really on the behavior that these teachings were spawning. And, and the behavior is obviously important and was part of it, but the emphasis here is really on the teaching itself. These false teachers were distorting theology in ways that probably sounded okay. They probably sounded sort of innocent. They probably sounded sort of inconsequential. But what they were doing was they were encouraging people to accommodate themselves to the prevailing culture. This is a very modern issue that we face in the church today. There were really two specific heresies that were being tolerated at Pergamum. Balaam, if you remember from the Old Testament, you can study up on him. He was sort of a notorious Old Testament um, prophet for hire. And he had, he had attempted to curse God's people and he was unsuccessful. So instead he devised a plan to corrupt Balak, who was the king of Moab, to put stumbling blocks in front of God's people um, to entice them to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of sexual immorality and idolatry. One commentator said that when Balaam was used in this way, 
It was probably a sort of general reference, and he said this, to all corrupt teachers who betrayed believers into fatal compromise with worldly ideologies. Then in verse 15, there's a phrase that says, so also, so also indicates that the teachings of the Nicolaitans were leading to the same wicked behavior as the followers of Balaam. Some people think that really the, when you said Balaam and the Nicolaitans, it was really one group because they kind of did the same thing. One a Hebrew reference, one a more Greek reference. But Nicolaitans were taught that Christians could freely participate in the pagan culture, including participating in pagan orgies. Both of these groups were guilty of accommodating themselves to the religious and the cultural and the social requirements of the pagan society where they lived. So let's parse this down a bit, and then I want to talk about three things I think God has for us in this commendation in this warning. We had Antipas. He was probably killed for refusing to bow down and to call Caesar Lord, and he, he was called faithful, and the church was commended for also doing that. The, the church does n- was not willing to deny Jesus. They were not willing to outright worship other gods, and that is good, Jesus says. But while you're good at being faithful to my name... Some of you are falling prey to false teaching that is pulling you into culture, pulling you into the resulting behavior of that culture that does not represent who you are as my Christ followers, as my followers. And then even though only part of the church was succumbing to these teachings, at the end of this section, he calls the entire church to repent. And he tells them that if not, he will come in judgment using the sword of my mouth. It's a very heavy passage, and I think God has something in it for us. I think we can see, first of all, just generally, I believe he would commend us in the same way that he commends this church. 168 years we have lived in a hard place to live, and we've held fast the name of Jesus. I know where you live, he tells us, and you've held fast my name. But then he might challenge us and warn us through this message in these three ways. Number one. Tolerance of false teachers is not okay. That may seem obvious, but let's listen to what's happening here. We see in this passage a faction in the church that is guilty of teaching and accepting false teaching, false theology, false doctrine. A faction is guilty of that, but everyone else is guilty essentially through this passage we see of indifference. He calls the entire church to repent. And he says, if not, I will come to you and I will war with them. This mixing and switching of pronouns was common in in a common expression of writing that essentially was designed to pull it together that says both you and them are intended to to, um, represent the entire or refer to the entire church. I think this is so important in our modern day where we somehow think we can overlook errors in theology or doctrine within the church, where we can sort of somehow agree to disagree and call it good. I think that sounds great. That sounds um, like something our culture could very easily stomach. It sounds like something maybe our culture would even encourage, but it's not biblical. Throughout God's word, there is a great warning against allowing false teaching to even exist within the church. 
In Galatians 5, 9, unaddressed sin was likened to leaven or to yeast. And it says, if you let leaven in, it will poison the entire dough. It's not safe to allow that within the church. Warnings against false teaching and warnings against sexual immorality, warnings against idolatry. But these things are prolific in the New Testament. Actually, in the New Testament, we hear of all sorts of false teaching that was happening, including the teaching of the sort mentioned here more than once. Second Peter 2, 1 through 10, Peter warns against false prophets who bring in destructive heresies, causing many to follow their sensuality. Peter says, they will exploit you with false words. I was reminded of Jeremiah who, who, in speaking out against the false prophets of, of the Old Testament times, he said they offer peace, peace, where there is no peace. They heal the wounds of people superficially. They're exploiting with these false words. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen warns specifically of false apostles who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And he compares them in that passage to Satan, who also dis- disguises himself as an angel of light. In verse 15 of that 2 Corinthians 11 passage, it says, So it is no surprise if his servants, if Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. Jude 1.4 talks about people creeping in, it says, and perverting the grace of God into sensuality. 2 Timothy 4, I believe, is one of the most, uh, speaks so clearly to our modern church. It says, For the time is coming when the people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Other, other versions say they will find teachers who teach in accordance with their feelings and desires, and they will turn away from listening to the truth. We as a church cannot endure in our ranks false teaching. And if we do, we will be held accountable, all of us. Number two, fragmented scripture will cause the church to crumble. I think this is really interesting what was happening here. The church was praised for their faithfulness. In the face of possible punishment and possible death, as happened to Antipas, they held fast to the name of Christ. And that was good. That was called good by Jesus in this. But then while they held fast to the name of Christ, they also began to to adjust what they believed about biblical behavior and lifestyle to better fit within the culture. The reality is they could face criminal punishment, even death, for failure to worship Caesar. But failure to participate in the pagan culture rarely brought criminal ramifications but it did very often bring societal ramifications. Just think of this in the context of where we live. Being Christians and abiding by a biblical standard of conduct made them look weird. It made them social outcasts. It hurt their businesses. It caused problems in their families. So they began to chip away at biblical boundaries to try to craft something less biblical and more culturally acceptable. And essentially, Jesus is saying, hold fast to my name, but do not ignore the rest of my word. 
And I think they were doing what many churches are doing in denominations and what we see in the Christian culture today. They, they were sort of trying to carve out Jesus. They were trying, and, and then they, they carved him out, and then they, they made him something really kind of sweet and palatable. I don't think they carved out the Jesus that we're hearing from today. They, uh, maybe you've heard something like this. I'm for Jesus, I'm just not for all the rest. We hear this all the time. They kind of, we, we hear people, they, they want to pull Jesus out, but they dismiss the Old Testament as irrelevant. They dismiss a biblical code of conduct as legalism or somehow um, being graceless or somehow being antiquated and out of date. But Jesus is saying here, the whole thing matters. You can't extract Jesus from the whole of God's word. Jesus is telling them that a healthy church, remember when we started this, this is a picture. What God gives us in these seven churches is a picture of a healthy church. Saying a healthy church is not just faithful to Jesus' name, but it is faithful also, in addition to that, it is faithful to the whole of God's word. We see that in the way Jesus describes himself at the beginning of this passage as, a, as him who has the two-edged sword. That two-edged sword is a reference to the description of God's word. We see that in Hebrews 4.12, where it says that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, uh, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus here is intentionally, from the start of this word, reminding the church that following him means following his whole word. And at the end, he says, if the church does not repent, he will come and wage war with the sword of his mouth. He will wage war with the whole of God's word. We've seen this sort of fracturing of the scripture happening all over the world. And we see it, it's not just a Western thing. Um, in, in different parts of the world, there's, there's different ways that people sort of pull things out that they don't like or they overemphasize and fail to em- some parts and fail to emphasize other parts. But we see this fracturing of Scripture happening all over the world. And that's why this comprehensive picture of a healthy church that we see in, in the book of Revelation to these seven churches is so important. In these seven churches, we are seeing good and bad things that should give us a comprehensive picture of what the church should be. And from these words to these seven churches, if you pull out the good and you pull out the bad, we see that the church should be characterized by nothing less than all of this, endurance, love for Christ, love for each other, steadfastness, faithfulness, faith, sound doctrine, works, morality, life, courage, and conviction. And what's happening in so much of the modern church is they're just starting to slowly just chip away at the things that are hard for them to deal with in the culture. Or they're trying to manipulate Scripture in that way. And what happens is it usually starts with very subtle concessions to cultural norms. They begin to feel the heat of culture when Scripture doesn't line up with prevailing thought on various issues. And so they they start in ways that seemingly are small or seemingly insignificant. 
And those create small cracks, but those cracks always grow. And it's why we see in many mainline denominations, in much of the church, we see the church just crumbling in on top of itself. Scriptural compromise creates a fissure in the foundation of the church. And in time, it will cause the whole thing to crumble. All of God's word is the gospel. All of God's word is good news. Whether the culture gets it or not. I saw this quote this week from John Piper. He said this, the world does not need cool Christians who are culturally saturated. It needs exiles with the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ. We must hold fast to him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The last thing in, here, in this section I think that, that God might be telling us and reminding us is test everything. I will tell you that preaching on this stage is a spiritual burden. It is a burden for Ryan. It is a burden for me. It is a burden for any of us who stand up here. We feel the weight of what we are doing when we are teaching here. We feel the weight of what it means to rightly, as we are called to do, to rightly handle the word of God. We are promised as pastors in this church that we will be called to give an account But even with all of that, you should take nothing we say for granted. You should test everything. You should test us. How do you do that? You test it according to Scripture. (laughs) Scripture itself is the test. Truth is not determined by experience. If my experience mine or anyone else's experience informs their truth, be skeptical. The role of experience and truth should be that the word shines light on our experience. The the word illuminates our experience. The word gives meaning to our experience, not vice versa. Beliefs that are based on the experience of a group or of a person or a group of persons will always be shifting based on the experience. Test what you hear according to scripture. Don't test it according to philosophy, whether it's ancient or modern. Don't test it according to secular texts. Don't test it according to popular speakers or writers or movies that have large platforms. Certainly don't test it against politicians. One of First SF's core values says this, and it's gonna be on the screen. We trust God's word as the foundation and filter for everything we do. This is how you test. You test everything through the filter of God's word. You look at God's word first and allow his word to inform everything else. I challenge you and I encourage you, be leery of any leader whose beliefs evolve based on their experiences or the experiences of others or on predominant cultural beliefs. Ask God to give you discernment. I believe he will. I believe you can tell. And I believe many times we know when an interpretation is contrived in order to meet some other need. All of scripture, every countercultural word of it All of Scripture is breathed out by God. It says this in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, and 17. It says it's breathed out. Just imagine God just going, "Ah." 
comes from the core of who God is. It is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of it. Paul challenged the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.20 not to despise. He says, don't despise prophetic utterances. Don't despise prophecy. But test everything and hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Jesus said in uh, John 8, 31, 32, he says, if you abide in, if you live in my word, if you live in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. God's word is wholly trustworthy. Its boundaries are wholly safe. And in those perfect boundaries, in that perfect truth is where we find our ultimate freedom. Jesus ends this word to the church at Pergamum with a promise to those who persevere in the truth. He says, to the one who conquers in a culture that will not get you, even though I know where you dwell, to those who conquer, says you will get some of the hidden manna. When I thought of that, um, I thought of the hidden Girl Scout Thin Men cookies that I have hidden from my children and, and how valuable they are to me and how valuable this is, more so than Thin Mints. But he says, I will give you some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. What this means is, is up to much debate. But the hidden manna is probably a Jewish reference to the manna that was um, stored in the Ark of the Covenant and then it was ultimately hidden um, in order to point the Jews to the coming Messiah. But, but what is not up for question is that what Jesus is saying here is stay the course and you will get more of me. I am the hidden manna. And in me, you will get a new name, a new identity. You will be a new creation. And there will be times when it is a lonely journey, but it will be worth it. The truth is that we as Christ followers cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve and accommodate both culture and Jesus as our Lord and God. The loss that we may feel as we live out a faithful life, and there may be loss, the loss as we try to remain true and we seek to live out even the most countercultural of biblical values and codes, the loss may be very real, but it will be far outweighed by what we receive. John 1, 1 through 5, I think the, some of my favorite verses, they're beautiful and poetic, I think, but they speak to the life that we find in the living word. This passage refers to the word as Jesus, and it says this, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was, the, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In him, in Jesus, in the fullness of who Jesus is, in the full of Jesus who is the word, is life and the light of men. I often think, and I'm not here yet, but I often think what an amazing place it would be to be fully content 
just following Christ, to be so secure in that relationship I have with him that I could just follow him with full contentment without any pressure to conform to the culture around me. What it would be like to be so content with him that, that I just lived out the life of being his witness in this place, that I was able to live his word and in that just to receive more and more of him, to receive more and more of the life that he offers in the process. I'm not there yet, but I wanna be. And I believe he is calling our church to move and press on in that process of of not segmenting and separating him out, but following him with his whole word. The truth is that we will face opposition from the culture and the culture will very likely not follow us in droves. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, the gate of destruction is wide. It consumes the masses, but the gate to life is narrow and those who find it are few. But for those who do find it, it is worth it. And it's there that we find in that place of a narrow road where, where we follow him no matter what the culture says around us. No, we are careful to, to protect our church from false teaching that pulls us away from God's word, that challenges what it means to follow him with all of who we are. It is there that we find what we need for life. We find our hope and our purpose and our promise where we find all we need for life and for godliness. And it's in that place that he then fills us and equips us to be who he's called us to be as his church in San Francisco and beyond. Let's pray. God, as we read and are studying these seven churches, God, it's, it's, it's very hard not to wonder what your letter to us would say. What would you commend? What would you rebuke? Where would you challenge? Where would you encourage? Would, would I be willing to hear it? God, we live in a place where it's hard sometimes to dwell as your followers. We live in a place where it's very easy to get sucked into the culture, to make small concessions, to struggle to understand how your word could fit into a world that thinks so differently than you. God, I pray today as we study this word that we would hear your encouraging word that you know where we dwell. God, what a comfort that is. You know where we live. You know where we dwell. And God, I pray you would soften our hearts to be sensitive to those things that that may seem insignificant but that are designed to lure us away from the whole of your word. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is all-encompassing. God, as it may pierce our hearts today, I pray that you would fill us with a sense of joy and comfort in knowing that as you rebuke us, you always equip us to follow and to lead the life you've called us to leave. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, God, you have called us, you are faithful, and you will do it. God, as we move into this time of offering, I I pray that you would um, bless this time. God, I pray that we would not hold on 
tightly to the things you have given us, but God, we would see everything we have as yours. God, I pray you would fill us with the desire to give and to share and to, um, and to see your name spread all over this city and all over this country. God, I pray that we as a church would be good stewards of the monies that are given today, and God, that you would use them to help us fulfill our purpose in this place. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.